The Biden administration's federal sustainability plan and climate goals depend heavily on procurement. As the country's single biggest landlord and one of its largest energy consumers, the federal government's purchasing power can help drive markets or maintain the status quo. Dorothy Robine is the former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Installations and Environment and a former commissioner of the Public Building Service at the General Services Administration. She spoke with Federal News Network's Amelia Brust about her new report on greening up federal procurement and what stands in the way. So there's a lot of different challenges that you lay out in the report. I want to know, where do you think the momentum really has to start? If it can start at agencies, or does it have to start with the legislative branch, or does it have to start with the White House giving a directive? I identified the three, what I see as the three big obstacles to agency compliance. And the first is that clean energy is not the mission for most federal agencies. Federal agencies are extraordinarily driven to achieve their agency mission. And in most cases, clean energy is not their mission. So these requirements are not mission driven. Second, they don't have the funding that they need. It takes green to go green. These requirements tend to be unfunded mandates. They come down from uh, Congress or from the White House, and people think agencies can just use their regular procurement budget to buy electric vehicles instead of gasoline-powered vehicles or energy-efficient products instead of less energy-efficient ones uh, to upgrade their buildings, and agencies simply don't have the funds to do that. And the funding problem is compounded by perverse budget rules set out by the Office of Management and Budget and the Congressional Budget Office, and I've had to deal with those in a lot of different different contexts, and they can be, uh, they can be quite perverse and make it even more difficult for agencies to, uh, to achieve their goals. And then the third big obstacle is the federal procurement process itself, which in a lot of areas, including energy-consuming products, awards the contract to the lowest price technically acceptable bid. In most cases, clean energy goods and services cost more upfront, even when they provide life cycle savings. So how would you recommend agencies or procurement officers, I guess, rethink how they view cost and what is the lowest cost of a purchase versus upfront costs or life cycle costs? That seems to be more of a mindset shift that has to happen. And I'm wondering if you can think of some examples of agencies that maybe did do it that way. I think, yes, it is a mindset, but I think you, I don't think it's a matter of just, you know, lecturing to procurement officers, procurement officials. The procurement system is huge. It's millions of transactions a year. They follow the federal acquisition regulation, or at least they're supposed to. But they are, they are driven to buy the culture. It is the culture of the system that at least in in many areas, including energy consuming products and vehicles to um, to go with the lowest price, the lowest price bid, the lowest price technically acceptable bid. And to change that, you need to change 
the federal acquisition culture. You need a radical reform of the federal acquisition culture and changes in the federal acquisition regulation itself to push toward life cycle costing. Sustainability needs to become a core competence of procurement officials. It, it really is a, a deep cultural change, but in the short run, the administration needs to shore up the provisions that are already in the federal acquisition regulation, but that tend to get overlooked, calling for uh, life cycle costing and uh, focus on um, energy efficiency. And in your report, you also talk about how green energy isn't necessarily baked into agency missions. You also point out that DOD and NASA have some experience with tech procurement in a mission-driven sense, as opposed to being cost-driven. So I'm just kind of wondering if you can speak to what makes those agencies different or able to buck the trend in that respect. I think that is the norm. When uh, when agencies have a mission, they will pursue innovation that enhances their mission. DOD, I use DOD and NASA because they're two of the best examples of agencies that have been very effective in using their procurement budgets to drive innovation. And with DOD, you know, the examples are, are you know, everything from the Internet to GPS and Earth-orbiting satellites. Those are all things that DOD and NASA did in order to enhance their mission. And they typically, and you saw it with the Health and Human Services, buying millions of doses of a vaccine that had not, the COVID-19 vaccine, before it had been developed, but they used their, HHS used its procurement authority to do that. So again, using procurement to be very, very innovative. Agencies can do that when something is in their mission interest because they can get the funding to pay more for the technology upfront when they are the, the early adopter of it, they typically have to pay more for it, and then they are able to bring the cost down. The same, the dynamic is very different when it comes to the, the sustainability requirements for agencies to to buy green, because it isn't typically in their mission. But what I'm arguing is that the Biden administration should be leveraging those places where agency missions and clean energy are in fact, aligned. And with regards to building efficiencies, one idea that has been around for a while is the idea of a federal capital revolving fund that agencies can use for innovation. Do you see any further interest in picking this method up for building efficiencies of federal sites? The revolving fund that you're talking about is a a proposal. It actually came out of the Office of Management and Budget and it's to create this this fund, which would be seeded at $10 billion, and it would be available to GSA. It would not be available to DOD, but GSA could use it to do major building renovations, renovations that cost, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. They could draw on that on that fund and then repay it over a long period of time. The budget rules, and this is one of the things that I have written about the problems with this, the budget OMB approach to budget scoring of federal investment in federal real property, you cannot, you have to pay for it 
up front. The federal budget is a is a cash budget. There it does there is no capital budget. The federal government doesn't have anything like that. And so if you're GSA, you have to fund a three hundred million dollar building renovation entirely up front. That's like trying to buy a house without access to a mortgage. It's very difficult. I think it's problematic. I think we should change the scoring rules. The Office of Management and Budget and CBO don't want to change the scoring rules. They have proposed this revolving fund as a way to fend off pressure to change the scoring rules. Former GSA Public Building Service Commissioner Dorothy Robine speaking with Federal News Network's Amelia Brust. Check out Amelia's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today 
that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders, and then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way 
to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy 5 or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.